won't forget, you know, I got the choir coming out and some other things coming out. But right now, I just, like I said, I just want to bless you and uh, be a blessing. If I can, I want to come back and do it again. You know, if I ain't got to sneak out, you know, I'm going to be compliant. But if not, you know, we get a minute, get a break, I'm going to come back in here and do it again. Um, thank you all for rocking with me for all the years, all the years, from 19 to really 83 to 1985. Um, the commission and even with the Winans when I was with them, I was 19 years old. That was 1980, but so it's all good. Uh, Radical for Christ, and uh, man, you've been there for the whole time, and I hope we've been a blessing to you. So I want to leave you with this. Lord, bless my people. Lord, give them what to do. More than anything, Lord, for my family and for their, everybody that's watching, I pray for peace. Peace in the spirit. That's the most important thing. We have peace in the midst of this storm. But Lord, if you're sleeping in the bottom of the boat, then we just trust it. We won't scream out, Lord, save us, we perish. You help us not to because the flesh, you know, it wants to scream that. But I pray for all those that are watching right now, every business, every um, church, every pastor, every uh, person. I pray for the politicians. I pray for the medical staff. I pray for medical teams, doctors and nurses. I pray for the elderly and, and the kids. And Lord, let us, let us win this. Lord, we know we're going to win it by your help. Most of all, Lord, let it draw somebody closer to you that they get to know you better. Amen. In Jesus' name we pray. So I want to leave you with this. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. It won't work. No weapon formed against me shall this morning. Put your hands together to receive our bishop, our pastor, Bishop Roy Jesse Lyson, as he brings to us the word of God on this morning. Receive him. thank the Lord for each and every one of you. We salute our mothers. Hallelujah. Come on, let's celebrate the mothers. You wouldn't be here without a mama because ain't no daddies making babies. We are seed sowers, but we grows nothing. That's up to the ladies. Thank the Lord. Hallelujah. They say that a man is blessed, he that findeth 
a wife findeth a good thing and finds favor from God. Amen. There's a reason for that. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Glory to God. We thank the Lord again for each and every one of you. We are excited about uh, Mother's Day, and uh, I pray that all of the men and uh, the young ladies uh, celebrate their moms today. Some of us don't have mothers that are still with us, and this day then becomes a day of heaviness. But think back on the time that you shared with your mom. Amen. And remember the good. Remember all that you have learned, both good and bad. And allow those lessons to be a blessing to you. We're just excited because uh, there's something that is experienced between a mother and their children that even men just do not understand. And we're thankful to God that he sent you to understand our children. Hallelujah. To love our children. Hallelujah. When we want to kill them. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We thank the Lord, though, for you and for all of you. Uh, that are here, we, we definitely salute you, and we're just uh, hoping and praying that you feel the love of your family and uh, your friends and those that have reached out to you to wish you a happy Mother's Day today, that you understand and know that it comes from their heart, that they are thinking of you today, uh, and if nobody says it to you, I love you, Amen. happy Mother's Day Amen. to all you mothers, and I thank God for you, hallelujah. Well... I know that, um, you know, in some churches it's typical to um, prepare a sermon that is uh, focused around whatever uh, the theme of the day is, but uh, those of you that know me know that that's not me. Hallelujah, I just give you what God gives me. And we've been talking about our identity and we've been talking about the distractions that come to break fellowship with knowing who you are. Uh, one of the things that we find that when, when you look at the experience of Eve in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, when she has this encounter with uh, the devil, regardless of the fact that Adam was not on his job, he was not on his post doing what he was supposed to be doing, regardless of that fact, what was missed is that Eve was having an identity crisis. When I know who I am, you can't get me to believe something about myself that's not true. When I'm not sure who I am, I have an inclination, but I don't have an assurity of who I am. It can be easy to be swayed one way or another, to believe something that may sound good, but simply is not true. When we look at Eve, you'll find that Eve, when she's in the garden, she has this chance encounter with the devil over the tree of knowledge of life and death, of good and evil. When she's having this conversation and she's talking about the fruit and talking about what God says. The devil throws out something which was a challenge to her identity. He was challenging whether or not she knew who she was. Look at your neighbor and ask your neighbor, do you know who you are? Because when Eve responds to the devil... Eve says, God says, don't eat of that or we will die. So what does the, the devil say? He says, oh, you're not going to die. What God is afraid of is you're going to find out who you are, that you're like him. Now, that sounds good to be like God. But what Eve did not realize in that moment, she was already like God. 
She was born and crafted by the hand of God, pulled from the side of Adam, formed in the very image of God. She was already the expression of God in all of creation, given dominion and power and the ability, the authority to rule. But because she did not know who she was, because she had not grappled with her own identity fully, she was swayed into believing that she was not what she already was. This is why identity is so important, and, and this is why identity is the one thing that the enemy comes after so much, so much. You, you'll see this, especially in this latest move of the enemy against humanity, in this idea that I may be built one way, but I see myself another. That is the manifestation of an identity crisis in the mentality of a person. When I am born male, but I desire to be female, or I believe myself to be female, I am in an identity crisis. I'm struggling with who I truly am. This is the greatest attack against the people of God. Struggling with who you are. Coming to a place and understanding with who you are in Christ opens, your door, opens the door in your life to be able to deal with life in the power of who Christ says you are versus the weakness of what your humanity says about you. We suffer too often in life because we're attacking life from the wrong platform. We're coming after things in life from the, the wrong place, from the wrong understanding. I'll give you an example. Many of us may have won or even more times or may even feel this way now, have you know, said about ourselves that we're depressed. So we're identifying ourselves with something that is bringing emotional turmoil into our life. We're believing something about ourselves that in truth, according to the word of God, is impossible. It's impossible for you to be depressed. Now you might say, well, why is that? Well, if you're a believer and you understand who you are, the Bible declares, you see, in the book of Proverbs, the Bible says that a wounded spirit no man can bear. Okay, so a wounded spirit is a spirit that is overcome with a spirit of depression. That is a spirit that has an inability to find life in and of itself. No man can bear this. So what does Jesus do? Jesus says that I have placed in you my what? His joy. He says, I've placed in you my joy. Why? So that your joy might be full. So then in truth, if I'm a believer, if I truly understand who I am in Christ, it's impossible for me in my identity as a child of God to really be depressed because the joy of the Lord has been put in me so that my joy always remains full. And if I'm full of joy, I cannot be depressed. It's impossible for joy and depression to coexist. But when we don't know who we are, we can't tap into the very truth of what God's word declares about us. And then the things in life that would bring depression, these things that would cause you to begin to think something about yourself that doesn't align with the Word of God, when these things come up because we don't have a full grasp of who we are in Christ, we are distracted by these very things 
and it, it exposes our weak side. Let's look at God for a moment. This is where I left off last week. God identifies himself. And, and <laughs> I, I can't stress how important identification is. So God is having this encounter with Moses. He's talking to Moses. He's giving Moses a command to go handle some God business. He's sending Moses on a mission. And Moses wants to know who it is. When he goes, he's going to be asked, who sent you? And he's asking for a name. He's asking for something to identify the authentication of his mission. So God identifies himself with the name I am. So if we take a, uh, a look at this descriptive name, we'll find that there isn't in it a past. There isn't in it a future. There is only a now. You see, the name represents what he is, not what he was, not what he will be, but what he is. I am. God is the creator of time. So then time itself exists in God and not God existing in time. And if God were bound by time, then no sacrifice that he could ever present could justify for all of time because that sacrifice would only meet that which has preceded it, not that which comes after it. So the fact that God sits outside of time allows the sacrifice of his part, which is Jesus, who steps into time, into this space that we call humanity as a form of matter that we call man. Now, when Jesus was on the cross, Jesus does something wonderful. He takes a moment where he steps out of time and he steps into eternity, which is a process or a place that is not confined by a beginning and an end. And he did this so that all of time could be affected by the very thing that he was doing. And when he got done with eternity, he steps back into time and he makes a declaration, it is finished. He comes back into time to let us know that everything that needed to be done was done. So then what is it that he finished? Well, what was finished is the sacrifice which met the demand of justice that was being called out for sin that was being committed, that had been committed, and that was going to be committed. You see, because God sits outside of time and sits in eternity and sees the expanse of time from its beginning to its end, he hears from the beginning to the end everything that is calling out for justice. So the broken body of Christ brings healing, it brings health to the, natural to the natural body so that we can be free of disease and sickness as a direct result of the fact that the body dies daily. Every day, you die. Every day, your molecules die. I remember our first Kirby vacuum cleaner. The Kirby man came to the door. And he didn't have me because it was expensive. I, I, we let him do his thing. He dumped dirt on the carpet and showed how fantastic the thing was. But when he went to our bed and he put this little filter on this little hand device, he says, let me show you something. This is why you need a Kirby. And he vacuums the bed. Now, anyone knows anything about First Lady First Lady's about as clean as Hilda Rios. And Hilda Rios was my grandmother who lived in, uh, uh, in, in uh, Harlem. And she is probably the only apartment where the roaches were afraid to come in. Because she'd give them a bath. That's just how clean she was. If you're coming up in here, you've got to be clean. Well, First Lady exemplifies a lot of that. 
But he's, he's vacuuming the sheet with this little hand device. It has this little filter on it so he, we can see what's happening. And he takes the cover off and he says, see? And he shakes it. And you see all this stuff. And me and my wife are looking at each other like, what was that? And sure enough, it's all your dead skin. Your skin that falls off your body every single night. You are sleeping in a pile of dead skin. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to be real. I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be truthful. Why does that happen? Because the body is dying every single day. You're, as you grow older, stuff stops working right. It starts shutting down. Hips don't move like they used to. I don't know about Shakira. Her hips may not lie, but, but my, my hips, try, they lie to me all the time. But we die. We die daily. And that's a direct result of the sin that is in the world. We're infected by it until Christ. Because Jesus reaches into your history. Now, you have to understand, your history is not just the things that have happened in your past. Your history is everything that's in your past, your present, and your future. So when Jesus reaches into your history, he's actually reaching into the entirety of your life and dealing with everything that demands justice. The stuff you've done, the stuff you are doing, and the stuff you, ha- you don't even know that you're getting ready to do. Jesus has already dealt with that. This is what we call the grace of God. Being manifested in time or in the human experience, which is the expanse of human history. So then we can declare, I'm saved. Well, what am I saved by? I'm saved by faith, according to the word of God. But faith in what? Is it in Jesus? Is my faith in Jesus enough for my salvation? The devil has faith in Jesus. The demonic forces not only have faith in Jesus, but they recognize Jesus' uh, authority over them. It's replete throughout the Bible every time they have an encounter with him. Why are you here? Look, leave us alone. It ain't even our time yet. They understood. They recognized the authority. They understood what they were dealing with. Yet they're not saved. So then what is it that my faith needs to be in? My faith is not just in Jesus, but is in, it's in what Jesus has done for us. Or what we refer to as the finished work of Christ. We call it the finished work because on the cross he said it is finished. While many of us are still trying to add to it, Jesus said it was finished. You can't add anything to what he's already done to justify yourself. So his act of taking upon himself the punishment for my sin is what was finished on the cross. So I believe God now sees me as righteous because of the work of Christ on the cross. This is my new identity in him. I'm not the unrighteous as seen by God, but now I am righteous. Now this will blow your mind. Even when I stumble and fall, even when I do something I should not be doing, I'm still seen as the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus reached into my history and dealt with every single thing that would demand justice. So my salvation then is sure because my faith says 
are made whole by the shedding of the blood of the Lamb. Well, who is the Lamb? Jesus is the Lamb of God, that perfect sacrifice for the redemption of my sin. So I'm under, what I'm understanding is, is my identity. I'm un, understanding who I am so that it becomes what, what typically happens when you make a mistake. One mistake compounds, another mistake compounds, another mistake. It's the old adage, when you tell a lie, what happens? You got to tell another lie. You got to tell another lie. You have to tell another lie. And, and, and before long, you done told so many lies, you don't even know what the first lie was. So now the story's really spanned it off and everyone knows you're lying. And this typically happens because you don't understand who you are. You see, my understanding of my identity comes through the experience, my experience, in the process of God moving me from one place to another. We talk about moving from glory to glory, but don't even understand that that process, that transition of moving from glory to glory, there is change both cultural and historical in our life. The process is necessary simply so I can understand who I truly am. And when I understand who I am, I understand the authority that I have. When I understand the authority I have, I understand my power. I know what I can do and what I cannot do. I know what I can say and what I cannot say. I know where I can go and where I cannot go because I know who I am. Now, I want you to understand something. It's really important to understand this word process, especially as it relates to our identity. Because every time we read the word process in in the Bible, in the King James Version of the Bible, we find that it is used in the same sense. And it says, and it came to pass in the process of time. So when God wants to process something, he takes the very thing that he wants to process and he places it in time to interject time into the equation of the thing. So when God decided he, wasn't, he wanted to change Lucifer's status, he moved Lucifer from eternity and locked him into time. When Adam transgressed the law of God, the grace of God prevented Adam from touching the tree of life because people would look at this as some type of punishment, but in fact, it was the first declaration of God's grace. The moment that Adam falls, the first act of God is to guard the tree of life. I want you to think about this. Because time has a lot to do with our identity. And while some people would say that that was a punishment by God, it was actually the very first act of God's grace. You see, if Adam had eaten from the tree of life while he was in a fallen state, then the curse upon his fall would have to be eternal rather than temporal. Adam would not have been able to live in the redemptive plan of God if Adam had stepped into eternity. The tree of life was a fruit that would bring eternal life. So in a fallen state, if Adam ate from it, he would remain in a fallen state. I want you to think about this. What is it that we have that the angels don't have? Redemption. Why is that? God could have redeemed them if he wanted to. He's God. But why did he choose not to? What's the difference between the angels and man? Man was placed in time. Man was created 
in time. The angels were created in eternity. So when they fell, they were eternally separated from God. There was no way for them to be redeemed because they had no ending. If Adam had been eternal, if he ate of the tree that brought eternal life, he would not have been able to enjoy the redemptive plan of God because redemption is a process of moving you from one place to another and the process, according to God's word, always occurs in time. God takes the thing he wants to process and he puts it in time. Before the creation of man, God knew man's fall, so he created man in time so he could process man from his fall to his redemption. So what God was saying to Adam was, I need you to change your position. Now I'm going to put you into time and give you a span of days that you will call a lifetime so that I can send my son to you in time to redeem you on time so I can pull you back out of time so you can be with me where there is no time. But if God wanted you to be where he is, where there is no time, he had to first put you where he could process you in time so you could be redeemed and pulled back at a time. But when we look at time, we don't see it that way. We don't, we don't see it the same way that God sees it. You see, for us, time is looked at as our enemy. As a matter of fact, many of you would say that you're racing against the clock. Most of our most exciting sporting events occur in a time frame, and the most exciting portion of that time frame isn't the beginning. And so you like football. What's the most exciting two minutes in football? Or not. <laughs> I want you to think about this. They have in football a two-minute drill where they do stuff in that two minutes to make all use of the time that they can trying to gain as many points as they can. And I used to say to myself, watching football, why don't they do that the whole game? If they got this two-minute drill where they got these plays drawn up where they're unstoppable, then make it a 60-minute drill and be unstoppable the entire game. <laughs> time. I want you to hear this. Time is not your enemy. Look at your neighbor and tell your neighbor, neighbor. I don't care how old you get, time is not your enemy. Time is simply a measurement. It's a measurement that God uses, but it's a measurement that he's not defined by. In fact, as a reflection of God in the earth, we are not defined by time either. If we are the reflection of him that sits outside of time, though I work in time, even I am not defined by time. Man, you'll hear man say, I've got all the time in the world. And a believer, that is true. A non-believer, not so much. But a believer, that is true. You've got all the time because you are identified by him who sits outside of time. So 
we do have a skewed mentality that says I'm too old to do a certain thing or there's no time left to accomplish any given task. But this is not God thinking. I want you to look at your neighbor and tell your neighbor, start thinking in your identity. Your identity declares you to think like God. Whatever God brings you to do, our time has nothing to do with our ability to accomplish what he's called you to do. You see, our ability is based upon the timelessness of the object of our faith. In fact, you can do more than you believe you can do. You can do more, you can say more, you can be more than you even believe of yourself. Zechariah 4 and 6 says this. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. What do you think about that? You see, the problem that we're experiencing in the church today, the problem that we're struggling with in our identity is we've stopped coming to church to receive from God, to have an experience with God, to be intimate with God, but we've come to study God like God is a subject to be studied. And all the while we're doing our studying, we remain disconnected from the object of our study. The moment that I met my wife, I knew I wanted to get to know her better. But I didn't want to get to know her to have knowledge of her. Now, when I was younger and struggling with my salvation, I'll be, I'm just being honest. I wanted to have some carnal knowledge. So I did what boys do. I put on the charm. I'm, I'm being real with you. Y'all come out speaking in other tongues? Oh, well, that's right. We're talking about that in Bible study. But I wanted to have intimate knowledge. Why? Because intimate knowledge is experienced knowledge. Studied knowledge robs you of experience because it disconnects you from the thing as something that's not a part of you. And that's the way many of us come to church. We come to church to make a forensic analysis of God as if we could ever really get to know and understand all that he is. But what we're missing is that God doesn't desire that we study him God's will is that we experience him so that we can know him. He wants us to have relationship with him. He said study his word. Don't study him. He wants you to have an experience with him. When I come to church, every time I come to church, whether there's service going on or not, when I step in this building... I'm looking, I'm expecting an experience with God. There are times when I'm in this building all by myself. And I'm coming in here and I'm talking to God and I'm looking for an experience. I'm looking for chairs to start levitating. I'm looking for light to just shine out of nowhere. But God knows if he did that, y'all would run out the door. Isaiah 40 and 28 says, hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. You're wasting your time even trying to study 
God. Study his word. Rightly dividing truth. Stop trying to study God and know him by having an experience with him. What does Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 tell us? It tells us that the thoughts of God are not our thoughts. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We don't even have the same level of thinking. But when you begin to understand your identity, when you begin to put the God mind in you to work, I didn't say your mind is God's mind. I said God's mind is in you. There's a difference. It's not your mind that has become God. It is God who has entered into your body according to your faith, which is the finished work that I am, what? Crucified with Christ. I don't live. Christ liveth in me. So it is the mind of God, the mind of Christ in me, directing and ordering my steps. So God sends his son, which is the word made flesh. Jesus is the word of God in life. He is the fulfillment of the prophetic word and thereby the fulfillment of my faith. So the prophetic word of God comes on purpose. It comes to get your mind out of the driver's seat and to put your spirit in the driver's seat because what God wants to do for you will not fit within the framework of your natural thinking. As a matter of fact, in the absence of any evidence, you have to respond to the prophetic word of God and declare, I have received what he has spoken. What you are saying is regardless of what the evidence declares to the contrary in the natural, I hear in my spirit the sound of God moving in my crisis and my chaos is coming to order. I'm sitting in the midst of my storm, but I hear the peace of God brewing on the inside of me so I know I'm going to be all right. What did Fred say when he was giving his words earlier? He said, if you're sleeping in the boat, then I'm all right with that because that means I'm all right. I know it's sometimes it's hard to see what I'm saying to you, but let me show you some truth from the Word of God. Let me just touch on this. I know you probably have a lot of Mother's Day stuff to do, but let me just give you this and, and, and then I'll get you out of here. First Kings 18, 41 through 44 says this. And Elijah said unto Ahab, get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, Go up, say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. You see, the problem we have is we have shaky people that want to go back on what they believe God has said just because other people can't see it. But if we would just be like Ahab and go to see it as many times as it takes for us to see it, the way God sees it, the way God said it, if you will do this, then you will find your faith will open your eyes to see something which is not born out of man, but it is born of God, which will only be seen in the spirit 
spirit realm where we are seated with Christ, but it'll be manifested in the natural realm where we now dwell. You, you, the, the, the songwriter said you got to see it before you see it. You got to see it before you see it. Most of us aren't seeing. We're not looking with our identity. If we look through the eyes of our identity, we would see so much more. When you look this through the eyes of your natural experience, you can only see the defeat connected to your natural carnal state. You see the, the, the natural state it's dying. So when you look with something that is dying, all you see is death. I don't look at my wife through the eyes of my carnal existence because then all I would see is death. I would see not just that she's growing older, but our relationship and everything connected to what I see would be formed and framed through a sight that's only designed to see death. So I don't just see her getting older. I see our relationship crumbling. I see our love failing. When you look through the spirit eye, when you look through the thing that is the epitome of life itself, then I don't see a woman growing older, I see a woman growing more beautiful. I don't see a love that's fading. I see a love that's blossoming. I don't see a relationship that's falling apart. I see a relationship that is day by day building upon the success of the day before it. Regardless of what failure may have existed, I see our potential because God shows me these things. There's a thing on TikTok. This preacher is preaching. And he's identifying his wife. And he's talking about why he married her. And I sent this, sent this to her uh, last night while I was working. And, and the culmination was, I married you. Not because you're beautiful. That helped. I mean, it was your beauty that caught my eye when she was walking in slow motion. Did I ever tell you all that story? Slow motion across the parking lot, and the hair was... And she was, she was gliding. I know I've told you all this story before. It's what caught my eye, but I married her, like this preacher said about his wife, because I saw into the spirit. I saw into the spirit, and I knew that with her by my side, we were going to make hell terrified. Now, you can ask her, when I spoke to her, I didn't spoke to, to her in the sense of what I was seeing then, which is, we don't really know each other, um, she had a boyfriend, um, you know, that, that was, those were the, that's the facts. But I didn't see her that way. And I didn't speak to her that way. I spoke to her because I'm a prophet. I spoke to her prophetically. Now, I think I told you this before. I told her the, the same night in, in which we met that she was going to be my wife. I didn't tell no other girl that. She's the only girl I've ever told that to. I spoke prophetically 
to her because I saw something in the spirit that was not yet evidenced in the natural. So then the process of getting where we were to where I knew we were going to be became worth it. Everything that we would have to endure to become who we are today. The process of time. God wanted us to be something, so he placed our relationship in the process of time so that it could become what it needed to become because I saw it at the beginning. She saw it somewhere in, in the middle somewhere when she knew I wasn't leaving her alone. But you have to understand, you have to begin to see things. Ahab, I mean, if I tell you that, and look outside, it's raining. There's an abundance of rain. But when I heard the sound, but didn't see the manifestation of it, it becomes easy when I don't understand who I am to say to myself, I must be wrong about the sound I hear because of what I do not see in my natural experience. Oh, but wait if we could just start saying something is wrong. But the wrong is not with what I'm hearing. The wrong is with what I am seeing. Because what I'm seeing is not aligning itself with what I'm hearing and I know that what I'm hearing is of God so because it's of God and I know who I am then what I'm seeing will shift it will transition into becoming what I'm hearing so right now there may not be a cloud in the sky but I hear the abundance of rain so I know rain is coming no matter how many times I got to go look The rain is coming. I know some of us are dealing with relationship issues, whether it's relationships with our children, our significant others, or just people. You know what you hear but what you hear doesn't always align with what you're experiencing. And you're ready to throw in the towel because you're putting more onus on what you see rather than what you've heard from God. Now some would say, well, I ain't heard nothing from God about this. Well, if you read your word, you hear from God all the time. He tells you exactly in his word what it is to expect even in your relationships with people. If you want to know what God knows about whatever your condition or situation is, go to his word. And he will give you what does the Bible tell us? He, it's not that he, he hears us, but he responds to us. I know we, we, we like to get frustrated. And I know some of you even get frustrated with me when it doesn't seem like what I'm saying is working out the way you expected it. But I'm here to tell you, look again. You see, I'm not going to change because what I've told you doesn't seem to be fitting in what you're seeing. What I am going to tell you is stand firm on what God has released into your spirit and commanded me to release to everyone under the sound of my voice. I'm not changing to satisfy your fear. I'm not going to change to satisfy your doubt. As a matter of fact, I'm going to double down and tell you, go look again, because I hear the abundance of rain. Yeah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Go look again. That's right. I die. <laughs> Sp
speaking in tongues. Here's the interpretation. Go look again! You ought to tell your neighbor, go look again. You ought to tell your other neighbor, go look again. I don't care what the evidence says. I don't care what the prognosis may say. I know what the Lord has said. Everywhere I go, I tell the people of God to declare or set an atmosphere in their life for what God says so that your expectation can be met as it's birthed from the imagination that's connected to a physical experience with God. You see... It becomes vital to grasp tightly the nature of the source from which the power itself is derived to set or change your atmosphere from being spiritually unproductive and dead to springing forth with life and teeming with abundance. You see, this is connected to every facet of your life from the physical to the psychological to the spiritual. We as the children of God are too often assimilating ourselves to our culture rather than living in restored kingdom authority. Our dominion has been restored now through Christ. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says, For as much then as... The children are partakers of flesh and blood. That's your physical experience. He, Jesus, also himself likewise took part of the same. Why? That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through uh, the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I live free because the very thing that bound me no longer has that authority. What do we know about the devil? He comes to do what? Which now he no longer has authority to do. When you know who you are. When you know who you are. Mothers, let me say this to you. I'll just stop right there. And, and this is actually good for fathers as well. Knowing your identity, knowing who you are in any given relationship is vitally important to the success of that relationship. Even if everyone in that relationship doesn't understand your identity. Families are falling apart. Children are running amok. And in often, often times, many cases, you'll find that the failure is because parents have lost their identity. They're trying to be something that they were never intended to be. I want to be friendly with my sons, but I don't necessarily want to be the friend of my son. That's okay. Tell Jesus I get back to him. I want to be friendly, but I'm not called to be their friend. That's not why I'm called. I'm called for those two boys to be their father. Their mother is called to not be their friend, but to be their mother. When we're trying to be what we're not, we open the door to trouble. When a mother is mothering their children, God designed her to be that way. 
to express a love that a father cannot express. To share a connection with her children that a father cannot understand. And when a father tries to do the same thing or to mimic it, he fails the child because that's not who he is. And it works in the opposite. A woman cannot understand the dynamic bond between a father and their children. Can't understand why fathers do things in a certain way with their children. I don't love my sons the way my wife loves my sons. And any time that we've ever disagreed on our children or in what we thought was best, it was always born out of one of us trying to act in the place of the other. This is what I think you should do as a father. This is what I think you should do as a mother. It's not my job to tell you what to do as a mother because I'm a father. I have no concept of what it is for you to be a mother. God gave you that wisdom. He didn't give me that wisdom. He gave me the wisdom of being a father. He joined us together so that I could have confidence in you to be a mother. And for you to have confidence in me to being a father. So that even when you don't understand my fathering, or I don't understand your mothering, because we have confidence in our identity, we have an assurity of confidence in who we are, then I know my children will enjoy success because we're functioning as God intended. But when we do not function as God intended, we bring dysfunction into the home and thereby pass dysfunction onto our children. And then our children pass it on to their children. And it becomes a self-repeating problem until somebody breaks it along the way. And this is what the enemy does. This is why the enemy wants to destroy the fabric of family. This is what the enemy's sole purpose is. We have to understand who we are and then stop trying to be what we're not. Amen. Period. I'm 50... How old am I? I'm almost 53 years old. But this woman over here is still my mother. And if she's my mother, that makes me what? Her son. It, it doesn't matter that I have two children of my own and a, and a wife of my own. She still is and will always be my mother. So when I try to act like something that I'm not, it brings dysfunction into the relationship between her and I. Now, it, 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 it becomes problematic when we don't understand who we are. But because I understand who I am, that I'm her son, I can love her and treat her as I think a son should to his mother. And because I'm a husband, I know how to treat my wife as a wife is in the best way that I think. And the two don't cross. Because I don't try to be a husband to her and a son to her. I don't call my wife mama. And I don't want her to call me daddy. She's not my dad, or, or I'm not her daddy. If I was her daddy, then we have a dysfunctional relationship. I don't need to be Big Poppy. 
I'm her husband. And that's what I need to act like. I'm my son's father. I like them. They don't always like me. Get over it. It ain't going to change who I am. I'm still their father. But when I start acting like their friend, so they'll like me better, I bring dysfunction into my relationship because I'm acting outside of my identity. When did this first happen? It happened with the very thing that I started with, I will close with. Eve in the garden brought dysfunction into her life because she thought herself something other than what she was. And here's the problem with dysfunction. Dysfunction does not stay with one, but dysfunction brings in everyone that's connected to you. So your dysfunction becomes his or her dysfunction. Dysfunction, function, where's the junction? Y'all too serious. Why so serious? We have to begin to function in who we are in Christ. And when we do, we will enjoy the abundant life that is promised in the word of God. God bless you, heaven smile upon you and grant to you great peace. And again, happy Mother's Day.